TV Drama Podcast. I am Scott, and joining me again this week, the consequences to my schmonsequences, as long as I'm rich, it's Brian. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Hey, Scott. How you doing? I am doing okay. Um, I think la- when last we spoke, I was talking about some dental woes or dental-related woes, and I've had, I've since had it sort of taken care of. Um, except it's still bothering me. So we'll see if it's just going to take a week or two to heal or am I just going to be miserable for the rest of my life? I mean, I think that was a granted to begin with, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just for yet a new reason. The question is, will you be miserable for the rest of your life with tooth pain? Exactly. Or, or gum pain as the case may be. But that's not what people are tuning into this podcast to listen to. They want to hear us talking about uh, Fargo, namely the eighth episode of season five, Blanket. But 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 before we start peeling back that cover, <laughs> see what I did there. Um, I wanted to mention a couple related things first, which have nothing to do with my dental issues either. Now I had mentioned in a previous podcast or two that I had wanted to rewatch. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas between episodes. And I was going to do that. I started it. I even watched the This is Halloween number. And then I got really sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) And I just was like, I'm not up for watching this. But I did watch something else, something I probably haven't watched in about at least 10 years. I think the odds are I watched it just before Fargo actually kicked off back in 2014. And that would be the original movie, Fargo. and. It's funny, I, I'd forgotten that the original movie is actually not that long a movie. It's just a little bit over an hour and a half. Um, so think about how they compressed all that stuff into one little movie, and now we watch these 10-episode seasons, whatever. Um, but I'm watching it for all the little touches and all the little uh, nods that we've been seeing throughout this season and seeing them kind of manifest in the original movie. And it just made me want to point a few things out, just because once my memory was rejiggered, I figured I can do the same for everyone else listening to the podcast. Now, first and foremost, we always comment the and we laugh at how episodes of Fargo at some point, usually it seems like lately they've been waiting till the second act to do the little, this is a true story scroll. Um, it's interesting to note that in the movie, they have all that information on one screen and they don't do the little disappearing number where all the words disappear except for the word true, kind of highlighting the fact, that, no, it's not. They, they kind of just played it straight, which I think, I think I remember, I don't know if I would call it controversial at the time, but there was a lot of commentary at the time. They're like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not a true story at all. Right. Cause people were wondering, like, wait, this happened? They're like, no, no, it didn't happen at all. But, let, let, going through the movie, well, first you have the character, um, I can't remember how to pronounce his name. I think his last name is Grimswood. Character is played by Peter Stamari. Um, he's a Swedish sociopath, right? And now this season, I mean, while Ole Munch isn't really identified ethnically speaking, I mean, we see there's a flashback that may be him, maybe his ancestor, who knows, 600 years ago in Wales. 
but that character certainly doesn't seem to be Welsh <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. He does appear to have at least Nordic roots of some kind, especially the way he speaks. So it's kind of easy to imagine there's a similar lineage between the Ole Munch character and the, oh, it's Gaier, Gaier Grimswood character. And there's a certain, more than a couple other similarities between them. The fact that they both like to murder someone with an axe in the exact same manner. They come rushing out of the house and planting the axe in him, and the camera cuts away right when the axe is about to hit. I mean, that's about as direct an homage as you can can imagine. Now, I had already mentioned when we covered the very first episode, or first two episodes of the season, that it felt to us that much of the plot of the first episode or two kind of felt like, and I think you were the one to use the word inverse, which I love that use of that word. It was perfect. It was an inverse of the plot from the original film. So, but I'm watching the movie and I'm realizing, oh, it really is to not just a basic degree, like layer after layer. You know, both husbands work in a car dealership, except in the movie, Jerry Lundegaard is a sniveling corrupt guy. He's neck deep in failed money schemes, no money of his own. Any money that there is, it's in, it's on his wife's side of the family because, you know, and, his, and her father is the one who owns everything. And obviously in the show that we've been watching, Wayne works at a car dealership. Everything else is the polar opposite. You know, he's as good and sweet and pure a guy as, as can be. There's probably, there's not a drop of corruption in him. It's the money's on his side of the family. It's his mother who owns everything. It's like every little thing. It's like, it's almost like a bizarro universe version. We'd mentioned like the wife gets kidnapped in the original movie. It's Jean. Although she does try to initially fight back, she's constantly making mistakes. She's falling down the stairs. She's flopping around blindly in the snow. And sadly, she's eventually killed. Um, that's pretty much the, the opposite there. You know, being a tiger who escapes multiple kidnappings attempts and even kills one of them. And despite, you know, calamity after crisis, after, you know, everything else she's going through, she's been a survivor through. Uh, thing with Dot, she's the one who's always talking about pancakes. I had forgotten that there's a thing about pancakes in the original movie, except it's Grimswood talking about pancakes. And the Steve Buscemi character, Carl, you know, busts bust him about, why is it always fucking pancakes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stick in a beer. So then, then finally, there's Indira. Who's quite endearing, quite frankly. Um, she's kind of the marge of our current season here. And, but it's also interesting to note her husband, her asshole husband, who, unlike Marge, who has the quite opposite husband as well, like the most awesome, supporting, sweetest husband of all time, Norm. But the thing is, one thing you remember, you remember and you find that at some point during the movie, because we keep referring to Marge as Marge Gunderson, Marge Gunderson, that's Norm's, that's her, that's her married name. But when she gets contacted from someone from her old school, they mention her maiden name. Her maiden name is Olmstead. Lara's last name is Olmstead. I don't feel there are any coincidences in the land of Fargo <laughs> and with what Noah Hawley's doing. Now, either that's just a wink and a nod, or it's supposed to start making us think, wait, it's not Lars in Marge's belly back in 1987, is it? And you start doing the math. Could the math be? But wouldn't Marge and Norm have raised a much better kid than Lars? Could it be someone in just on her side of the family? Maybe, maybe she's an aunt Marge. 
I mean, I, it's one of those things you start looking up just how common a name is Olmsted. It's like, well, it's not uncommon, but I don't think it's so common where it's, you know, you're dealing in the same basic area where there would be another one. And you intentionally choose the name. Yeah. I mean, you, especially when you have someone like Noah Hawley, whether it be his other TV series that we've seen him do, like Legion, but especially, especially with Fargo, he's very specific and has a lot of fun with how he names every single character. There really are no boring, no are no really boring names in any in any season of Fargo. There's always and there's always going to be several names that kind of make you laugh a little bit. I mean, come on, even this season, yes, Roy Tillman is kind of a base, a somewhat basic name, but it fits that character that he wouldn't have a wacky name. But we've got, you know, as you like to mention, Danish Graves, and boy, do we have him in this episode, and boy, does that name come become really appropriate in this episode? And you know, we we could go on with previous seasons. So it's just, it's funny now that I've watched that movie again, and I was struck by, you know, I enjoyed it, of course. Um, I was also struck by how long it takes Marge to show up in that movie. Like I said, that movie is like with all the credits and everything, it's an hour and thirty eight minutes take out the end credits probably like an hour 33 hour 34 something like that marge doesn't show up for like 32 minutes and change so a third of the movie is over by the time marge shows up which makes sense based on the construction of the movie but it also made me think wow i i I didn't take the time to do it but i wonder if if she and William H. Macy have a similar amount of screen time in this movie, yet he was relegated to supporting actor and she was, she got the, uh, the Academy Award for lead. Um, because if that's so, I, I, you could make a case for him being best, being best actor, no, uh, nomination worthy, but that just might be what the studio, I mean, it is what the studio decides where they're going to, where they're going to slot you. And I had forgotten how, um, how scattered and and what a sad sack that character was from the get-go. Because <laughs> when we covered, or we didn't cover season one of Fargo, unfortunately, but we certainly have talked about it a lot. And we thought when they did season one that the uh, Martin Freeman's character in that was to some extent modeled after the Lundegaard character. And now I'm watching it again, and I'm remembering the Martin Freeman character, and I'm like going, yeah, it's interesting because... Martin Freeman's character in season one slowly becomes corrupt and, you know, in, in his way. And, and we, we talked about that's what makes that season to me. That still is the most interesting season because the person that we're rooting for, we, we become more and more horrified by as we move on, um, compared to the, the, the sociopath who we find frightening but vastly entertaining, still the most entertaining villain that we've had in all five seasons, I would say. Um, but it's such an interesting dichotomy there. It's like, oh, can you root for them to kill each other at one point? Because that's right. what you kind of want. But luckily we have the, the, the two good cops to, to handle business with the two of them. Anyway. Well, and, it, and it's like, it's much like the killer in No Country for Old Men. I mean, there's, that they there are some very compelling villains in the Cohen verse yeah. and uh but in on these TV uh versions of Fargo I don't think there's any doubt the first season villain was probably the most well-rounded villain that that we've been presented that that both their pathos their capacity for evil 
but also they're just, you know, sort of charisma is uh, rounds them out in a way that, that they're more compelling than say some of the other villains. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And even, even comparing him to say, uh, what he was like, like Anton from, um, no country from old men. Um, and yet the Billy Bob Thornton character is, is all of what he, of, of what the other character is. I can't pronounce his last name. So I'm not going to try. Um, and yet he's funny too. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely, there's a, there's a wit about him, but it's, it's a rare character. And it's, and it's a great villain character that can be that witty and, and with the wit comes menace. Like when he's had, I remember there was an interaction he has with just, just a random guy who sees him parked somewhere and is worried about who, who this guy might be and that maybe he's, he's going to call the, and they're just having a back and forth. And Billy Bob Thornton's character is being very kind of a smart ass to him, whatever. But at, at, at any moment you keep thinking, Oh, he's going to blow this guy away. <laughs> you right. know? And it's going to be as casual as can be. He's, he's just the most interesting sociopath we've had, especially when there's that great reveal of what that whole thing he does to become a dentist, <laughs> which is just bonkers insane. And you realize, wait a minute, did he just spend like several months creating this persona and character, which just ends kind of like, you know, like that in an elevator, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, I was thinking watching this episode that, that we're podcasting about today, um, they continue to take Roy Tillman to the darkest of, of villains. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I mean, after what we see today, um, I'm pretty confident. I think I said a couple of weeks ago, is he the worst? Uh, he's probably certainly if, I mean, if we had, if we lined up all the Fargo villains, um, and we got people to vote who to kill first, he would probably win the popular vote. It's interesting. I, I, I totally agree with that. And it's, and what I was about to say that's interesting is it's interesting that they went and got the most likable or charismatic actor of all the villains that they've cast on the show. Not to say we haven't like, like Billy Bob Thornton, certainly charismatic and likable, but it's John Hamm, you know, right. He's not, and I'm not just talking Don Draper for the Mad Men fan, but you know, he's done so many comedy things. People have enjoyed him on Saturday night live and his appearances and, and all the things with Tina Fey and so on. And I just, I actually just watched a movie that's on um, Hulu that came out in 2023 called um, Maggie Moore. And with an S in a prostrate, in a parentheses, so Maggie Moore's whatever. Um, and it's about like two different women named Maggie Moore's are both murdered. And there's a reason for that. And we've got Tina Fey and um, the guy who was the assistant coach from Ted Lasso, whose name I forget off the top of my head. Um, maybe that's Nick Muhammad, actually. And John Hamm is the main guy. He's like, the, he's, he's a sheriff, actually. And he's basically, what, remember what, what I was talking about—the two husbands being the polar opposite of each other. You know, Lundegaard and uh, Wayne. John Hamm's two sheriffs, and these two things both in the same year, pretty much polar opposites of one another. Polar. <laughs> I mean, hey, just, maybe maybe he did that to wash wash off the stink of 
Oh yeah, he, I mean he. I mean he's you know he he's he he thinks so many things are inappropriate to joke about, and you know he's he's kind of you know he's still in love with his his passed away wife, but he's trying to have a relationship, and it, it, it's 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 actually not bad. It's it's not the greatest thing, but it's kind of it's fine. It's entertaining. John Slattery actually directed him, and I'm shocked he didn't pop himself in there for a few minutes somewhere, just have a drink with John Hamm on screen once again, because that's what he likes to do every time, you know, and everything they're ever in together, apparently. Mm-hmm. But it was just funny, because like, oh, that's a John Hamm that people like. And if I click over on my Hulu, I'll go to Fargo, oh, that's a John Hamm that's making everyone go, like, oh my god. And we, yeah. we haven't even gotten to this episode yet. So, oh. yeah, this was the one where, yeah, it's like, okay, we, we, we saw the puppet version, and we and then we actually revisit the puppet version briefly in this episode, but then we see the live action in action, and it's it's horrifying. It's horrifying what he attempts to even do, and the words he chooses. He he he's a man who chooses his words very carefully. I wouldn't say he's a he, he's not the man of few words the way Ole Munch is, which is a comment he makes to Munch because there are times he can go into the little spiels, whatever, but. It seems like anything that Roy Tillman says, much like I was talking about with Billy Bob Thornton, which kind of reminds me of the two, how they two link together. Every word has a certain level of menace behind it. And it feels like each one could be accompanied by, you know, a swift crack to the jaw or something like that. And it certainly is the case in this episode. So let's get into it. Um, I think a lot of what this episode is going to revolve around is the Roy dot interactions on screen. Um, obviously there's a lot of other things going on in this episode, but, um, I think I want to, well, we're going to bounce around it. We're not going to go, you know, act by act, step by step here. Um, and I really want to get into the Roy dot stuff right off the bat. Um, luckily a lot of that is in the very beginning of the episode at the hospital. So it's kind of interesting to watch everything from dot, once again, trying to find a way to get out of the situation. And, and just in those simple interactions with the, uh, the nurse behind the, behind the counter, how much power Roy has because of who he is and how, you know, the, the good thing about being part, you know, the sheriff in a small town is that you know everyone in a small town. And the fact that that woman behind the counter looked like she was you know, frightened for Dot's life and maybe would have tried to do something to help her. And he sees that and what he says, kind of like, okay, we, we, we've taken care of that. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to be helping her, you know, because that brother of yours is still in, you know, was he in prison or keep staying out of prison, whatever it was, definitely a threat to, to her. Kind of suggested like he, he was on parole and maybe he'd end up back in prison if, if she helped. And then um, Wit shows up. So I know you were happy about seeing Wit, but we knew he was showing up. And again, Wit's a man with a badge and a gun. And that doesn't seem to matter here. Because he's dealing with another guy with a badge and a gun. And oh, look, here's three more deputies. They all, they all got badges. They all got guns. And one of them, even if they haven't put, on a, put, put a racist tag on them yet, pretty much is playing it that way. <laughs> You know, if he's not racist, then he's just anti anyone who's not authority who's not his dad. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, and I, 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 they keep building up the the conflict between Gator and Wit. Um, this is the second time they faced off 
and Gator has tried to sort of get in his face and intimidate him. Uh, which leads me to still, there's still hope for the, the three-way standoff I, I proposed in a previous podcast. Uh, but the, 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 the way they shot this hospital, um, you know, it wasn't very busy. There weren't a lot of people there. Uh, Wit brings his guy in, sees her, but the way he's persistent, uh, and like, you know, he could just safely walk away. But I love the way that he sees her um, and persists and he he's reading her body and she's sending him every message she can without. But then at the end, I thought the nice turn um, was Dot trying to save his life. Right. Like Dot knew it had reached the point that like there was going to be violence and they would kill him and take her anyway. And she's trying to signal to him, like, just, it, I'll be fine. Just go. Because she knows, like, she knows Roy well enough to know he's at the point where something's about to happen. Um, right. It was interesting, like, just before that, that it's almost a call back to the last time these two encountered each other in a hospital where she once again goes right to denying the truth of what he already knows to be true. That right. she had been kidnapped and then so on and so forth. Um, now, whether at this point she's doing that more to calm down Roy from the situation, since Roy went, so are you accusing me of kidnapping here, whatever, which, so, I, and you're right, and once again, she technically saves Wit's life, much like she did, um, you know, in the, whatever that was, the, the convenience store. Convenience store. Thank you. I, I was going to say supermarket. Like, no, it's not a supermarket. What's the word? It's not a bodega. What's the word? Oh, I'm so <laughs> New York. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So we, we, we get that show down there and we, we know that she's going to be leaving with him. And so the, our first thought is going to be, okay, where is he taking her exactly? Because my thought was, okay, you, but you've got, you know, as screwed up as that situation is, as, as, as well it should be, considering the type of person he is, you've got a wife and children at home already. So I can't imagine you'd be introducing her into the same home. And no, he's not. He's basically taking her to this, you know, essentially like a, a shack on the other side of the compound, not, not, not anywhere near the entrance or near the main ho house from, from the looks of it. And the fact he's essentially, we, we, we've talked about her being a tiger a number of times. You know, Ole has said that, and he kind of, he's actually called her a tick at one point, which is a much more demeaning thing to call her. And now he's treating her like kind of like a, a rabid dog, the way she's chained up and everything. Um, and you get that scene between them in the shack. That, to me, that was the first wow scene I thought of the episode. We get a few others, a few ones. We get another one in that very uh, room later on. But it was, it's the back and forth. And it was interesting because, um, and, and it's also interesting to watch John Hamm's performance of, of, of Roy. Because, like, how much would he be taken aback by the fact that she was basically spitting things right back at him? as opposed to just cowering from him and how much it would anger him, you know, and whether he would do something to her right then and there. 
And the interesting twist of, at least in this scene, is his current wife, Karen, Karen, Karen shows up <laughs> and she's the one who hits her, which uh, I didn't, I did not have that on my bingo card. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> who's going to hit Dot for the first, you know, first in this episode, um, his current wife. Okay. didn't see that one. Well, we get context for Karen later in the episode. Right. Um, when we see how her dad treats her, mm. um, you know, that, you know, not only did she marry Roy, like this is the training that, that her father gave her that women are stupid and shouldn't talk. And so, I mean, he prepared her for life with Roy, but I think Karen hates dot because dots the thing Roy can't let go of. And it makes you wonder if as much as Roy hates her, that she is a tick, but not, in the way he describes, like he can't shake her emotionally because she's one of the only people that stands up to him. And, you know, it makes you wonder if in a sick way that what's in that trunk at the foot of Roy's bed isn't related to dot. And that's not, and that's why Karen doesn't necessarily like dot. Hmm. Never thought of that part. Interesting. Um, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I don't, I'd also just add to it that um male or female or uh, anything or anything else for that matter in this day and age um sometimes we are always most attracted to or most interested in or most obsessed with which is probably the best a uh, more more correct way uh, of phrasing it of anything and i speak from some experience unfortunately we are most obsessed with that which either we can't have or shouldn't have or which has, in Dot's case, um, bested us in some in means. And Roy is all about ego. I mean, that's why he's in the position he's in. And it's more about that. It's more about the power that he can flex rather than money in his wallet, as, as we've seen proven in a previous episode. And the fact that Dot in any way got the best of him makes him that much more obsessed with her. As we saw from that conversation that he had with uh, Munch in that previous episode, where he he mentions, just like anyone who's obsessed, we have our moments of clarity or, or rational, where we can, rationality, where we realize, oh, this this probably isn't for the best. We probably shouldn't be doing this. We probably shouldn't, we probably should put let this go. But then it rises, you know, almost immediately when you just start to give it when the dark side of your nature starts to uh, take over again, which it does with Roy, certainly when Munch kind of just pushes him just, just for the hell of it. I don't really have a reason why, <laughs> why Munch would care at that point. Um, because he doesn't seem like he has any interest in having a kind of revenge on dot for what she did when she got away from him one, you know, back, back way back when, um, so, I, I think with all that put together, he can't help himself. And he he would probably sacrifice most things or, or, or tear things asunder just to get her. Now that he has her, the question is, what's he going to do with her? Right. Is he, because he, <clears throat> if he's not, if he, he's not going to resume his marriage with her, presumably. Although it is interesting how 
he does point out that everything that she did after leaving him, because she would technically still be married to him, is fraudulent. It doesn't mean anything. Even the fact that she had a kid. And by the way, we, I think we still think it's his kid, by the way. I'm pretty sure we think it's got to be his kid. He doesn't point out that that technically that should also apply to him. Right. And his exactly. wife and his, and his kids that they shouldn't count either. Be, you know, but well, he, it's, although it's, he does kind of treat them that way. That. Yes, oh, yes. It's the whole hypocrisy of that statement that he's in law enforcement breaking the law constantly. And everything he does should be free of the poisonous tree, but he only applies it to her. Right. And it goes along with how we've seen his character from the get-go, and especially when we take into context this is 2019, he, and we obviously know what his political leanings are and how he, how he views things, whatever. And without going too far down that road, um, not knowing what, 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 uh, how our listenership kind of divides itself, other than maybe, you know, we know one, we know one Trump supporter. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you, uh, what do you gotta do? Anyway, <laughs> there's a reference for you. But if there's something these administrations and people of the last five, seven, ten years are no, are known for, it's that hypocrisy. It's it's the, it's the habit of making declarative statements about other people, which actually apply to yourself more so than the people that you're attacking. And that's what Roy does here, um, which I thought was very interesting. But um, yeah. I say it's all it's always projection. It's oh, always absolutely. Projection. Um, so th- throughout the scene where we are concerned for her. And we you know we we I think we 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 I think we tapped to her a couple times th- throughout the episode. We have this scene. I think in the middle we have the scene where where Gator shows up. Am I correct? Yep. I mean I'm not I'm not cutting. I mean we we do. I think we do. Uh, we might cut to her when she's you know trying to find the take part pieces of the bed to try to pick the lock to to get out of the chain or whatever. He he shows up. Oh, the, that's when the kids show He leaves for the debate. Then. Gator comes because he left Gator behind during the debate. Right. And then he comes back after the debate and is interrupted by Danish. Right. Or no, by, by Wit showing up and then Danish shows up. Um, no, he's interrupted by the, one of his men who, who, uh, the, the tall black gentleman who tells him that the lawyer is at the, at the yes. gate. Um, yeah. uh, yeah. Okay. So, We'll stay with. We'll just stay with that in that room for a bit longer, then, because I thought the gator scene was impo- was interesting, and that's Be- gonna- before we jump there. Sure, can sure, I add, sure. Go ahead. I really like the tact that she took, um, in talking to him. That that she defied him, but but made it about like being a mom. Uh, well, that like I like how she talks about Scotty, like all the all the benchmarks she would miss. With Scotty and uh, I, I, I thought that dialogue was very. It, it was a way she was being, uh, asking him as nicely as she could to let him go because she says, "Just let me go," uh, and obviously he can't. 
But at the end, when it's apparent, like none of that matters at all after what he finally says. And he you know, says, you know, still got that mouth on you and I'll I'll let you go when you promise to me. And I know you really mean it that you want to stay. That's all he really wants. Like that's how twisted he is. Uh, and she says, well, I'll promise you I'm going to kill you. Right. And I, I like how it wasn't until the end that that she saw there was no hope. She was declarative about that. But later, I think it's suggested that's still a little hyperbole on her part because the reality of it sets in later in the episode that she's she's in her mind. She thinks like, I'm never leaving this room. Right. I'm never leaving this room alive. Right. Um, well, what she does early, early on the scene with Roy there, and she, when she starts bringing up all the things about her daughter and missing certain moments in her life and her husband and her, and the life she, she's also doing something where, um, she's taking a page from when someone is held captive and, what they want to do, what a, what a negotiator wants to do quite often is humanize the victim, make them as real as possible. Whereas the captor wants to dehumanize them as much as possible. Just see them as just, you know, and like in Roy's case, almost like as, as, as his toy or plaything, not as a person, not as someone who has real feelings and emotions and impacts the lives of others. So that's what she's doing there. She's bring and she brings up these situations and, and she's really trying to use her Scotty as the example because it's a child. Um, using her husband probably would not have the same kind of impact or just feed jealousy, if anything, but bringing up the fact that there's an innocent child here that is waiting for her mom and all these things that they were supposed to do, whatever. And the fact that she brings up things that aren't, she's not making like, she's not going for big, for big obvious things. You know, I don't want, I don't want to miss her first date. I don't want to miss her graduating. I don't want to miss, it's like, she's making it almost the mundane, casual little moments. Right. Because that feels that much more real and tangible and immediate. You know, the fact that she won't be there to make her pancakes tomorrow morning kind of a thing. I don't, right. know, if she, I don't know if she actually says that. But I'm just using that as an example. But it, but I think she's appealing to, I mean, I hate to say this because I think the politics of this are clear. She's trying to appeal to somebody whose outward persona is family values. Right. And whose, you know, his purported code is it's all about family. And she's appealing to family values that this is my family and this is what I should be doing. We do find that she does say a couple, I think, revealing things about Wayne in this that that I think we get to see a little bit of her true feelings about Wayne. Um, and they give a curious shout out to call the midwife that that's their show. They've just started yeah, watching. Really and she's funny. like, there's like six seasons of that or 60 episodes of that or something. But like. Which I, you know, which is the little touch of I think quirky humor this show always adds. Uh, but yeah, I, I love the scene. I love the it, it. It's the dialogue I thought was really good in this in this scene. Really well written. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I should mention because I forgot to say it at the top um, that the episode was directed by 
Civilian White again, and it was written once again by Noah Hawley, and this time co-written by someone named Thomas Bazooka. I, I, don't, I probably I apologize, Thomas. I'm I bet your name is not pronounced Bazooka, but B E Z U C H A. It should be Bazooka. That'd be that's an awesome name. Otherwise, um, so they had a hand in the writing of this. Um, the thing I was about to get to, but but but, but we can toggle right back to it. Um, was the next major scene what died in the shack with with, with Gator? So the thing with this scene and what it brings into the picture is the stuff involving Gator's actual mother. Linda, who she brings up here, and she talks about Linda in a way that would imply that the events that we saw in that previous episode actually happened, um, which Gator clearly does not believe and thinks that she's just, and basically just goes defaults right to, you're a liar. Which is probably something that's been instilled in him over the last decade from his father that this woman is is a liar, whatever. Um, and 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 we're going to get back to the Linda thing in a minute, you know, because that comes that, that manifests more later in the episode, and really, um, it's something to talk about for sure here. But. There's a tack she suddenly takes when it when it's clear that she, much like what you were saying with her interactions with Roy before, when she essentially is a trying to appeal to Roy's humanity, appeal to his supposed family values, whatever, and then when it's clear that it's not that's nothing is going to work in that regard, she goes on the offensive, and the tiger's claws come out, so to speak, when she says. You know, she promises that she's going to kill him. One of those claws, one or two of those claws comes out here when Gator just, Gator just doesn't simply not believe her. He's kind of nasty about it in a way that, you know, it, almost like he's looking for it to whatever happens to her happens, including even if it's right. her dying, whatever. If I'm not mistaken, she recounts this whole thing that happened when he was born and her and his father's reaction to him, and she goes as far. And it's one of those things. True or not, all you need to say is go ask him, right? And that has the feeling of truth to it. And it's, it and it's and it also confirms what we've seen the way he, Roy has already treated Gator in this throughout this season and how he's reacted to it about and especially about being a loser so to speak and she that's that's the sore spot she hits right there and it shows that you don't need to just be physically you don't need to be physically violent to be a tiger you you, you can do it verbally as well right well I, she really hits him hard with like you know the ending of the Roy Tillman name like why if it was named everybody why aren't you named Roy Tillman um, and, and she's armed, I think, in my it, it, when I thought back to this, she she gains one crucial piece of information. Uh, Roy can't help but come in there because he's obsessed with her. Gator really had no reason to come into there other than curiosity or, you know, just to talk to her like Gator could have just stayed outside. He came in there looking for something. So she took a shot with him. Like, you know, we know Roy's going to go in there. Can't help himself. 
why did Gator come in there? She, I, I think that suggests to, that suggested to her there's there's some doubt in Gator. Why right. would he come in there if they're all alone? Like, um, you know, and and you know, Roy wouldn't have wanted Gator to go in there because Roy doesn't trust Gator not to screw up. Um, I she knew there was something she could push. When she had to, but she tried to do the right thing first. I think she even says something like, this is your last chance to do the right thing. Or, you know, I, I forget how she phrases it, like, you know, before she turns ugly uh, on him. But we see him go out and get in the car and she did strike a nerve. Right. And, uh, well, it, it, you know, it's worth pointing out then that when we saw the the puppet show replay of their lives, um, one of the moments that we see in that puppet show is the child version of Gator, um, laying his head on her lap, yeah. uh, weeping about the loss of his, his mother leaving and what's, and what's been, ha- what's happened with Linda. So we have that, that was our way of seeing, okay, there was a relationship between Dot and Gator once upon a time that he did go to her for consolation and comfort of, of what what had happened with, with his mother and his father and so on. So that, having seen that, that's where she tries to go because she figures there is that connection. Right. And we've, and, and I, I love, I love her calling him out. I mean, you know, you know, the, I don't know if she does it in that scene or a previous one or a previous episode. I'm, they're all, they've all merged together, people. I'm, I'm old and stupid now. But she kind of she kind of calls out him, shame on him, yeah, with, with the way he's been acting and what he's done, yeah, you know, because that means because at least for a certain period of time, even if it was brief, because we, I don't, I'm not clear, fifteen to seventeen, but I don't know how much beyond seventeen. At what point dot left? I don't know if I was clear on when that happened. It probably has been said to us, or maybe if I look closely at the documents, it might indicate to us. I don't know. But the point I'm trying to make is there was a piece of time there where for all intents and purposes, she was, you know, Gator's stepmom or acted in that capacity. Right. You know, and so there was that connection there. So then when he gets really nasty with her, like, well, it's like he's just doing an impression of his dad at that point, right. you know, because that's, that is, you know, whom he wants. It's not just that he takes after his father, it's who he wants to take after. Right. He, he want- feels inadequate and he wants to be, he wants to be a tough guy like his dad. And right. even, even though he knows he's not. And it's, you know, he's kind of turned into a really pathetic, sad character. Right, right, right. So, um, well, we can toggle back to him a, a little bit later. I, I kind of want to bounce around the episode a little bit more here um, before we get to the big stuff later on. Um, I want to go back to the beginning because I'm curious. Uh, I was so entertained by the opening. And, you know, I'm I'm an old, although I didn't like it quite as much as Mr. Show, I did, I, I did still, I was a fan of Kids in the Hall. So I always loved David Foley from back, Dave Foley from back then, as well as news radio and whatever. And I've really gotten, some enjoyment out of the Danish Graves character. So when we see the initial scheme starting at the beginning of the episode, I, I, I will confess I was a little bewildered at where they were going. It didn't. It didn't occur to me. Thank, thankfully, 
Although it's annoying for me because I try to create threads on Facebook and sometimes an image for the actual podcast, um, it has been very, very difficult to get to grab any stills, promotional stills for this show on a week to week basis about an upcoming episode because they've been really kind of not releasing stuff until after the episode is aired. Which is kind of, which hasn't always been the case, you know. So I'm, I'm kind of regurgitating old promotional material for every <laughs> thing, or, or it's the most, or it has to be the most generic shot. So I didn't see the shot that I saw today when I went online. There was already a, a photo from the Fargo website of um, Roy Tillman standing next to the other three quote unquote Roy Tillmans. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd seen, because let me tell you, if I'd seen that shot two days ago. That, that's either the podcast shot or it's the Facebook thread shot. Either way, I'd be yeah. doing it. Yeah, that they uh, the debate uh, was a, a simple comic device that that Danish Graves uh, employs, and it is it was kind of neat to see him in his element out doing his thing. Um. And knowing enough about Roy Tillman that, that what he could do and to set all this up and, and stage manage it to get under his skin and create this this scandal uh, was was really fascinating. And I at first thought, I mean, when this I, the beginning happened, this scene started and I'm like, you know, a minute or two into it, I was like, is he like dreaming on his way to the debate? Has he fallen asleep? And this is a nightmare. And then I went, oh, no. Now, I remember at the beginning, the guys changed their name and they don't tell you, didn't tell you who they were, uh, you know, and then you realize it's reality. Uh, and it, it was it was a it was a funny moment and a, a really, really good scene. Um, and the public sees the nasty face of of Roy Tillman. Right. And it's televised. And, and it's also fun to note that the way uh, we see the way. Danish came up with the idea or how he put it into operation was by going through a book of the various debtors and who owed money. And he found like three of the most likely uh, male candidates who would probably physically fit the bill. And we don't see it, but probably he approached him like, okay, we will absolve you of your debt here, but this is what you have to do. Right. And and I'm guessing these guys probably had debt similar to I didn't see the numbers on screen because I, I wasn't psychotic and plausible or anything, but I'm betting they're they're similar to Indira, who had her car repossessed this episode, poor girl. Um I just thought that's a very interesting scheme there. And quite frankly, the chaos that ensues is probably even better than they could have expected because could they have planned that <laughs> that Tillman would actually try to punch out the moderator? <laughs> Who's, no. a, who's also a woman by this by that case so at that point we've seen two different women get get smacked pretty hard in this episode so it was uh the, the domestic abuse warning ahead of time i didn't know it was going to happen in this scene as well um so it's an interesting episode for danish grays because we get so much more of him in this episode and we see but there's one problem that happens is from the the gas stop on is where he starts to act independently because we see him at the gas stop and he's clearly talking to Lorraine 
And that's when uh, Wit spots him and has a conversation with him and, and relays to him the information that Dot is now on the ranch and he's worried about her. She, you know, and it's it's funny because his reaction, Danish Gray's reaction, almost came off as though he wasn't aware of the complete ramifications of what had happened between Roy and Dot, which doesn't. Which is, which shouldn't really be that surprising because I'm trying to imagine a scene where Lorraine would have shown him the file and talked about that. I don't know if that would have happened or not. I don't know. I don't see that happening. But no, he, I don't see that happening. I, I think that's the kind of stuff that, that that's family business. She's not going to talk about unless she has to. But what's interesting is so he's at the gas stop. He's gotten this information. He knows Dot is at the ranch. This police officer has ma- makes it fairly clear that he thinks that she's in danger and 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 time the clock is ticking, so to speak. He looks at his phone, and you can see that all the previous calls and whatever have all been between Lorraine. And you think, oh, he can just call her right back, and that's the first decision he makes. On he decides not to. He decides not to. He's in a, and he decides, and therefore he decides to go to the ranch himself. Now, the fact is, when he, when he shows up later and he he has that scene with Roy, then you see, okay, Danish Graves actually, perhaps at, more so than Lorraine had until that moment with the fall that he again don't think he's aware of. He's a bit more human than she is. He because without having spoken to Lorraine. He makes it clear that they can put his election back on track because they're the ones responsible for what's happened here if he gives her her daughter-in-law. So it, it's just the, the, the problem with Danish is what happens like he starts making decisions on his own and he underestimates and, and by doing that, he doesn't have the full picture of who he's dealing with and he underestimates the danger involved. Like if he had seen those, if if he had spoken to Lorraine and told and told her what was going on, they might have come up with a plan beyond him showing up there by himself. Because at that point, maybe she would have laid the type of violence this man is capable of, and there might have been. And there's probably even more to it than that. I would imagine he certainly probably wouldn't have gone in there, you know, without some form of security with him. I, I, yeah, but I think there's two considerations. There's the time consideration that if he tells Lorraine, Lorraine might take too long. Uh-huh. Um, but, and there's also the consideration if if he asks Lorraine, Lorraine doesn't trade the election for her life. Right. And, you know, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, so in a weird way, in a weird way, like he actually does something nice. And, and presumably and gets and we see what happens when you do something nice to a bad person it, it doesn't work out well right 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 i mean one could say he does the he, technically he does the right thing given the circumstances um but it also to me it just it feels like it also shows when you do something when you don't know the when you don't have the full picture um the likelihood of it going well is 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 small to infinitesimal. Um, now, well, could he, could he certainly could, would have said, "Don't tell him you did this." Like the kind of guy, like if he knows you're the guy behind this, you're dead. Yeah, because we the way Roy was fuming earlier, 
and we and that's worthy of a, a, a mini conversation of itself. Um, the moment he starts talking about it, I was like, like, no, 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 no. You, you, this is not the time to even remotely do something that that looks like you're gloating about what you did. And the, especially the moment he he opens up a drawer and puts a gun on a very large gun. Oh yeah, on the desk. I mean that that's a that's a Dirty Harry special looks like to me. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I don't know if it was a forty four or three fifty seven. Either way, it was huge. <laughs> you know, that's it, a big old gun. That had to be a big. Uh, had to be a big drawer for that, that thing to come out of. Well, if, if someone's going to be pulling out a big gun, it would be John Hamm. So there you go. Well, I was going to say it could be a veiled, you know, John Hamm. Anaconda <laughs> reference. So. There you go. It's like he just got up out of a hot tub. Hot. <laughs> and notice that was a hot tub, not a cold tub. So you figure there wasn't any shrinkage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow. But, How'd we go but there? It, 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 weren't you kind of amazed thinking back to Fargo that season, you, you know, the, the episode eight of this season is the first body drop of like one of the main characters. Is that right? Is it? Is it? Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. You mentioned that the other day, I think, didn't you? Yeah, like, like, and I'm not saying like there's 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 a bloodbath towards the end always in these. Oh yeah, but usually, usually some fairly significant character dies before episode eight in Fargo. And this is, you know, this is the first domino to fall this season. Yeah. And the only other one was the, was the, was the other kidnapper who was only within that one specific episode. So in the deputy that, that was killed with Gator, but right. neither of consequential character. I mean, did he have, did he have more than a line or two? I don't even remember. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, he's listening to credit as guy who gets stabbed. <laughs> yeah. A stabbing victim. So, so, and I think based on, and when you look at all the characters that populate this season, I mean, I don't know if I would have had Danish Graves as the most likely guy to get shot. I mean, you know, you don't usually shoot the lawyer. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that, and, and also, and again, much much like there's a certain shock level of, uh, we've had to get used to all season of John Hamm being this exceedingly horrible, horrible person. It's also having someone like Dave Foley play the lawyer who eventually get gets shot to get shot in the gut and is killed before this. He, it's clearly possible he's done some dramatic work that I'm probably not aware of, but I'm going to say for most viewers, he's at the very least known for being a comedy performer. Right. So seeing that guy suddenly get blown away, you know, I, and I believe he's shot more than once. I think he shoots him. And, then, and then, oh, there's that great line he has. He does the uh, 80s action hero where he has like the kill shot line, like where he stands over him and does raise the gun like Dirty Harry. Oh, it's uh, it's if you're so smart, why are you so dead? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah want, it was like a Schwarzenegger one liner. I want to rip off that line. It's so good. Um, yeah, and that's what leads to later at, at at the end of the episode when when Dot is looking out, breaks the little window and, and looks out and and sees um, basically Danish being buried under. Uh, I don't know what the thing is that they move exactly. I, I don't think it's really relevant. I don't know if it's like a water, like a like a feed tub or like a water it, it, tub, it, something it, maybe for the something livestock. That, it's, yeah, it's something next to the windmill, and then it looks like they're also pouring lye or something like that over the body. Yeah, lime. You know. Lime. Did I say lie? I meant lime. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh, these guys watched The Wire once upon a time. Oh, good yeah. for them. Um, and I think seeing that is the 
not not that Dot needed another shock to the system because we actually we obviously haven't talked about a certain other scene which happens before that. Um, but and also, and that's the joke where oh, his name is Graves, and look at that, we just saw a grave yep. from whatever. But that that's like okay, he's he's killing people. And I don't know that I, I think that that kind of puts her in a situation. She knows how bad her situation is, obviously, from from the big fight scene that we haven't talked about yet. But seeing that he's been murdered and she knows who it is. Yeah. She heard the reference to the lawyer. She knows who it is. And, you know, he's even the little body from four way. I mean, his manner of dress and whatever, you know, he's he's wearing he's basically Matlock with an eye patch with, mm-hmm. with his, you know, his Mark Twain white outfit on. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a shocker there. Yeah, and uh, after the fight, I mean, she she knows what she's in for, but she always knew there was violence to her. But anybody coming to try to save her, or even anyone trying to get to her, is is in danger. And and it, it, and not just will he keep them away from her if they get close enough, he'll kill them. Right, right, right. Speaking of getting close enough to kill somebody, uh, let's just tie off Gator while we're at it. So earlier on, Gator had gone up, had driven up to the. Uh, I think that it feels like there's more than one entrance to this ranch. It seems to me, I, I get confused by it a little bit. The the whole geography. There's two roads. That might maybe that's what it is. So at one point, Wit has shown up there, and so we get the the Gator Wit showdown again. Um, and I love wit. Speaking of lines, I really enjoyed in the, it, and also because I just love bringing up consequences. You know, that, as a writer, I just, I just, I like, I always like to bring up consequences. Um, and if you've read something I've written, you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, but wit has that line here. I know you don't think they're coming, but they're almost here. Consequences. Yep. And. Even though it might not have had anything to do with anything Wit said there, it now one has to note that Gator gets back in his car, he drives off, and we see someone's in the back seat, and it's Munch. And all I'm thinking is like, I cannot think of a plausible way that Gator is going to. I mean, I'm sure he will because they probably want to keep him for two episodes. But how the hell is he going to survive this? <laughs> Unless Munch decides just to hobble him or something. How the heck does he survive that guy? Because talk about a force of nature. That guy. Did he bring his axe with him? That guy. Um, and the fact that we just... And that happens with... And there's still at least... I think at that point when that scene happened, there was at least 20 or 30 minutes left in the episode. And we never go back to And it. they never go back. Yes. And I, I had that in my notes. Like... I, I was thinking, did did I miss something or what? Like, the, and they just never go back to it. So you got to wonder when we get to the next episode, are we going to continue where we left off with them, or are we going to pick up with them where Munch already has them somewhere? I, I'm there's so many ways they could go about it. I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by it. And what exactly is it Munch wants to do? Does he know? Does he know that he? It seems like he knows. He was responsible for the death of that woman that wasn't his mom, but he was treating like his mom or called his mom. It was very confusing in of itself. Maybe he found a little tracker on his car 
which I'm expecting he did. Um, <laughs> and that should be something to, I'm really looking forward to it. And the only, the only issue is that it could screw up the whole, you know, Mexican standoff. And if we throw wit in there as well, but you know, still could be part of it. Still, that it still makes the most sense to me. Um, but that was a moment where I kind of went, if I, if it had been in a movie theater, I would have went, Ooh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a good moment. No one, you know, no one ever looks in the rear view mirror, do they? So, <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 what do you, we can do one of two things. We can get to the, the, the big dot Roy scene, or we can play on the Indira stuff first. Up to you. I think we do the Indira stuff first. And then with that, that and Roy. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, um, we see Indira come up a few times in this episode. Obviously, Wit does contact her to let her know what's going on. And we see her go home, you know, to change. And Lars is there. And we then discover, or we all discover together, that Lars is cheating on her. Um, what's significant about the scene is after that idiotic spiel that Lars went on in a previous episode about the, the kind of wife that he wants, um, she turns the tables on him and rips him f- far better and more coherently than anything he had said in that episode and pointing out that he's pretty much been useless and is essentially kicking him out of the house. Right. Not much of a man. Not much of a man at all. Um, I do love that she, th- and I love that she's doing this as she's changing also. Cause she's got, she's got right. things she got to do. And I went, Oh, look at that. Interesting. I even found the, the choice of undergarments for her character to be kind of interesting because there's, you know, there, there's the black color, which kind of usually signifies one thing, but there are the, the nature of the garments are, they're not quite super sexy slinky at the same time. So they're kind of, they got the the they're, they're black, but they're more utilitarian the way the bra and the, and the underwear. Maybe I shouldn't have been paying that much attention. I can't help it. I'm a dude, but um, yeah, well, I, I think it's it just she she's a practical person wearing underwear she'd wear at work, and you know I thought that that was uh, went along with her character, right? And uh, um, I love how she just completely dismisses the girl in the you know, in the closet yeah. and just sort of tells her to move, move. Right. <laughs> Shame on change. you. Both of you. Shame. I mean, it was probably like, uh, it was probably like the calmest, best brutal takedown you could give someone. Right. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, I just was one other thing revol- involving Indira and the connection to the movie. And I had actually, after I watched the movie and I was, I noticed all the similarities and I, I started to try to look things up about the Olmstead name. I want to see if this had been picked up and a few other things. There were articles I picked up on the Olmstead thing that this wasn't, Oh, I found something. I'm sure, you know, I found it on a few other places mentioning it, uh, and the weird connection there and a Reddit thread or something like that. Um, but then they also tried to make a connection between a scene in the very first episode and a significant scene in the original movie. And the scene I'm thinking of, referring to is when Indira initially is driving Dot to uh, the police station and and jail. Um, And they're having a conversation. And Indira doesn't know Dot yet at this point. She's only reacting to the fact that this woman tased another police officer and whatever. And I think in the midst of the conversation, um, Indira drops the line about it being a beautiful day. And then whatever. 
but Dot keeps maintaining the fact, you know, it was an accident, and now I, you know, basically even agreeing with a lot of what Indira is saying in the scene, whatever. So they tried to make the connect. One article I read tried to make a connection between that and a scene in the original Fargo film, and maybe it's because, and and obviously nothing is a coincidence. So it is the fact that it's the main character, the main police officer of the piece, which you know Indira here, Marge in the movie, is driving. And someone is in the back seat, you know, who's being arrested. And they're having a, a moment. And they both use the phrase beautiful day in their thing. So I guess that is a little connection there. Um, my only pushback on it is, and I haven't watched the original Fargo movie in, I'm going to say at least 10 years. So I'm, I'm, I'm positive I rewatched it before the show started. Just, in, you know, I want to see if they would make references. And they do. You know, the money. Um just huge when we really think about it. But here's what I didn't remember, and I don't—I I don't know why I'm talking about this moment. It's, oh, it's Fargo, so it's still Fargo. That moment with Marge talking in the car, and I would urge anyone who doesn't remember the scene really well, um, because it, and it's it, and it's the 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 Swedish sociopath is the person in the backseat. This is after she's already gotten him, after she shot him in the leg, after he had uh, put sent me through the. <laughs> Through the wood chipper. <laughs> I love the foot sticking. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, she just goes on this little monologue about not understanding the way people are and, and the thing, not, not just what this man has done, but just in general. And I am, okay. I admit, I, I can be a bit of a softy at things. I can get, it doesn't take that much to get me going. But I did watch the movie from beginning to end. I didn't, I didn't watch it in little pieces like I do sometimes. I watched it, you know, straight through. And that's the one moment in the movie that actually got me, for whatever reason, got me choked up. And maybe, and then, maybe that's the scene that made her win the Oscar. I don't know. It's such a beautiful little scene. I would encourage anyone, if you don't remember what the scene, go on YouTube. You'll find it. You know, Marge in the car talking about it. I don't know what it would be called. So that's why I kind of pushed back on like connecting those two scenes. Although it works for the inverse, inverse idea that happens at the end, you know, of the of the movie, and the person in the backseat doesn't say a word. He's just kind of staring straight ahead or at her. Maybe it doesn't even compute to him because he is a true sociopath. He's not going to have feelings. Right. Whereas in Dara's little moment where they both mentioned beautiful day, whatever, is at the very beginning, and it's with someone who is empathetic, who does understand, who does even agree, whatever. Um, the only thing that, but the problem is, we haven't formed any emotional connections at this point in, in, in the season, so it's not an emotionally affecting scene, whereas this is at the end of a story, and it is. Plus, it's, I mean, no offense to Holly and the other, and who, I don't think it was just Holly, no one, the scene with Marge at the end of the movie, I mean, that that's like the big writing scene. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. that, that probably, that might be the best written scene in the entire darn movie. So it's hard to really, it's really unfair to compare the two in that sense. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting because again, it was a connection between those two. And I, and I, and I just now realized, oh wait, the inverse thing works again. Cause it's again, the opposite. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, uh, I think the only bit of, uh, of sort of deep thought I had, uh, about this episode I want to share is I kept thinking about the title blanket mm -hmm. and uh, 
I think the title blanket refers to Indira and Dot um, both striving to escape captivity. That Indira comes in and her husband's under the blanket and he's been cheating on her. And it gives her the strength to break free and she ends it and tells him to get out. And she cuts the anchor. She cuts the weight from around her leg and tells him to go. In the in the house, Dot uses the blanket to hide the fact that she has freed herself to try to kill Roy. Um, it's the only, only place that, that she could hide what she's done by taking the bed apart and stuff. So I think for both women, like the, the idea of of what happened involving blankets in this episode uh, had to do with their attempt to escape captivity. Indira has dot is trying. And hopefully as we see at the end, when Indira goes to, uh, you know, dots, mother-in-law that she will help free dot. Um, but that, that, cause I, I'm always curious what the title of the episode means. And when I first looked at it, I thought blanket, that's a weird title for an episode. Um, and as I reflected back on it, those were my thoughts. So. See, uh, see, that could be, that could be true, but I, I thought it was more because they were like really big fans of Michael Jackson and his kids. And <laughs> Named Blanket. Wanted... <laughs> blanket. <laughs> And Roy's going to hold Gator out of the window ledge later. (laughs) Sorry. I'm a bad person. Anyway. um, (laughs) (laughs) So, right. And so, yeah. And then later we see Endura goes to Lorraine and, which is nice because, you know, we we get a little, so we do get a little bit of Lorraine in the episode, you know, you know, and, and, you know, and trying to do something. And it looks like they're about, they're motivated to get to, to, you know, spring into action, doing something although they're unaware that Danish is already trying to do something which is not going to work out. Right. But let's now get back to Roy at the ranch and Roy pulling up in the car. And you were talking, you mentioned this earlier because Karen kind of uh, can't stop talking in the back seat. And I kept thinking, no, no, your audience, no, your audience, stop, stop, whatever. Cause her dad is certainly trying to tell her to shut up, whatever. Because Roy is in fuming mode. Uh, you know, he looks like he could, you know, looks like if he had heat vision, he would be searing, you know, holes out that windshield right there. And we kind of know where Karen's going to go with her spiel about, you know, thinking Dot isn't, you know, is ba- bad luck, a curse, an albatross, and so on. She, we already know that she hates her and views her as competition, and that's why she took a smack whack at her earlier. But then they make a very interesting decision after they've pulled up. And you don't realize how interesting a decision is until you see how long it goes on for. We have Roy getting getting out of the car, out of the truck, and walk. And you know he's going to see Dot. And that's where you realize just how far away Dot, where Dot is being held from, from everything else. And it's a very long shot for a while there. Of we're, we're just, you know, we're in front of him. Our POV is in front of him. So he's marching towards the camera. And they're playing a version of the song Toxic um, o- over it, which is, you know, a little on the nose. But, you know, I'll forgive it, Holly. You you I, you make the best musical selections and, and it worked for the moment. It wasn't it wasn't what I would have thought of using, which made it kind of cool in a, in a way. 
that you no, know, just to be sure, because I'm you know I'm not up with the kids and their music for the last you know half century or whatever it's been. Is that is that the Britney Spears song Toxic or is it a different song or my crazy? No, that was that was the that was a hit for Britney Spears, right. uh, which which is interesting because she has sort of her own being controlled throughout her adulthood by a conservatorship issue. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Uh, Free but, Britney, but, yeah, yeah, but the, but the the length of this shot and the the buildup of it is what is remarkable and even before we leave i thought the one episode the one the one detail in the car that i thought was fascinating uh-huh. um was the the little girls right and how they're like they're like the kid in class that doesn't want to get called on you know that didn't do the homework that's that's looking like they are not making eye contact they're they're not making a sound they know what they know what mood their dad's in and they're not gonna do anything which shows like how fired up he is like that they're basically like mannequins right 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 that makes sense you you wonder cuz i haven't i don't think they've made a reference to it as of yet but one wonders if Although we know how he feels about women and his wives and how women should be in the house and how, how to treat them as far and, and how he is in favor of using physical violence, um, as a way of keeping things in line. One has to imagine that there's all, he's also not a spare the rod and spoil. He's a spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing. I think we've made references to the possibility that he's hit Gator. I think she's, oh, yeah. Dot has made reference to it as well. You worry or wonder about those twins and whether that's happened at any point or not. But, um, yeah, it, it's interesting to, to think about the kids being there because they're not simply props and they're, they're, but the fact that the again, it's not just knowing your audience, but the fact that she would go off on this extended thing, which is clearly just going to rile him up. And maybe there's part of her that's doing that on purpose because she knows she's hopeful it'll lead to him going and beating the hell out of Dot, not her, right? You know, with and maybe she feels she would have some level of, if not protection or security, because she does have her daughters on either side and her father, her actual father, in the front seat, um, although. From what I've seen on uh, in our limited exposure to her father, but just based on his dialogue in the scene, I don't think he would have an issue if he saw Roy smack his daughter. Nope. I think he'd he like, she no. should have kept her mouth shut. Exactly. So we we get that extended march to the shack with Roy, and again, it's it's you become so aware of how long it goes on for, and that's what kind of it, it gives it sort of that. It gives it a certain cinematic quality, is the way I looked at it. Where there are the, there are some famous shots throughout the history of film where we just stand this one shot of someone, say, walking towards the camera, or walking away, whatever. And the longer you hold it, um, the more the more meaning is attached to it. Or in the, and if if it's someone's walking away, someone's walking towards the camera, the more. Um, either heroic or menace, depending on the nature of the character, is going to be involved here. You know, we were talking, I was talking recently about um, the end of The Crown, where we had this very long shot, but taken from from high above of a character walking away, 
in a room that seems to go on forever. Eventually, yeah. Tordoy and leaves, and that's a very and if you go in time, that's a very long shot. Here, someone walking towards the camera. We're staying with them, kind of. Along, I'm not. They don't do the Spike Lee thing here, but you know, there's there's a bit of steady cam involved or something along those lines. I think. It, it, I don't know, but I think that goes on for at least 90 seconds, maybe a couple, maybe even two whole minutes, which is an eternity. And, um, once you take out the commercials, then like in a 45 minute, um, television episode. Oh, yeah. And this is all building to him, you know, going to see Dot again. And this becomes the big fight scene in, in the episode. And I mean, we, we know she's going to fight back. And we know the chains are going to be involved, so that 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 was all expected. I think the shocking things, and even though he doesn't actually connect, but the fact that he tries to hit her a number of times with the entire the, the chain and the assembly like that, and you realize that that connects, that very well could kill her or at least seriously maim her. Um, it's it's harrowing because we've already seen their fights played out as puppets. We've seen their fights played out in after the fact photos. We've heard, and in this episode, she actually details all the things that he had done to her, all the injuries where we get to hear about, you know, the dislocated this and the broken that. And that, 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 that I'm not going to listen. We all know there were ribs and collarbones and, and oh my, it was hard. It's, but, yeah. but keep in mind, like the first part of this fight, we don't see. He walks in. And it just shows the house. And then when it cuts, like it's almost suggested like that he knocked her out already once. Right, 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 right. You're right. They they cut and and I think that's they I think they do that deliberately. They cut away from it. We don't see it initially. And I think we think, oh, we're gonna get a break from this. We're not gonna we're not gonna go there. Because We've spent so much time. The whole season's been about revolved around this, and we've again, like I, and we just detailed how we've heard about it. We've we've seen reenactments of it. We've seen the evidence of it, her reaction to it, her memories of it, but we actually haven't seen it. And even in the earlier scene, it's his wife that hits her, not him. So even even though we're half expecting him to haul off and belt her because he's threatening to, he's talking about that mouth of hers, whatever. And when they cut away and we hear that, and we're like, oh, they're going to spare us. And then we go back in, and he knows her. He knows her well enough that she's not unconscious. She's faking it. And the eyes spring open, whatever. And then, you, yeah, and then the actual fight between them really kicks in, kicks into high gear and we see that she she is a tiger you know and how she attacks and whatever and the back and it's it, it was one of those things where i kept thinking this is the eighth episode not the tenth and even though i will give every season almost every season of fargo i'll give it credit for they will occasionally go into unexpected directions and change things and pull the rug out from under you in my mind, I said, it's the eighth episode. They're not killing either of these two characters in the eighth episode. Now with two episodes to go. I don't, there's no, there's just no way. So part of me was wondering, like, okay, where can we go from this? And in my mind, I kept thinking, I can't, 
if it's the eighth episode, I don't think she can get out of it at this point. Not, not this episode. I think that's still going to have to be played out, which makes you hurt a little bit because you realize, okay, that means he's going to have to get the better of her here. That it's just the way I saw it playing out. And it, and in fact, it is the way it did play out, essentially. And if, in fact, if, then if Danish Graves doesn't appear when he appears, maybe she, maybe she does die in that scene. Um, but obviously, and then we wouldn't really have much of a TV show then, would we? Uh, but there is that now we can circle back to what I brought up earlier and let, and I'll, I'll let you go with it here. When they're having that back and forth, the fight and she brings up Linda. And now remember, at this point, as far as the viewer is concerned, the previous episode, we were like, oh, wait, so did they just, uh, it was all a dream? Did they just Dallas us? Did they just usual suspects us? What, what, what just happened? I'm not clear. There was a heck of a lot of detail there. It certainly felt like it was. Re- and... And when she talks about Linda to Gator earlier in the scene, I mean, excuse me, early in the episode, you think, oh, wait a minute. So maybe that did happen, or maybe there's a memory of something similar to that, whatever. No, 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 no. This is the scene, and it's and it's when she brings up Linda to him, still acting as though that had all happened, and he just very matter-of-factly says, I'll bury you right next to her. And he says it in a way like he's already... Linda's already dead and buried. Yep. So, because uh, I talked to you before we started recording, I was like, so I'm guessing it means this, but I'm not clear because I don't, it's such a big thing and I don't want to be wrong because <laughs> I've been wrong before. And you kind of uh, took it from there. So tell well, me I again, she, Brian. <laughs> I think she suppressed what happened with Linda or or created a reality about what she believed happened. It very well may have been Linda ran away. And he found her and killed her, right. but Linda didn't get away. And I think that's the thing with Roy Tillman. You don't get away from Roy Tillman. Um, so her, I think she did fall asleep in the car and dreamed it or fell asleep in the diner, you know, eating a pancake uh, and, and went back into this reality she has created for uh, to protect herself. Uh, but she kind of had a breakthrough. Um, realizing what her damage was, but now knows, you know, Linda was gone. And and it also explains why Gator was like, you're crazy. Like right. Gator clearly knows his mom isn't coming home. Now I'm sure Roy has told him a story that he believes that's not credible to anybody else, but Gator believes, but um, he's destroyed the last of dots created uh, memories to protect herself from the trauma of, of what happened to Linda and give herself, you know, the strength to think she can make it out like Linda did because Linda didn't make it out. Right, right, right. And that's, and that's the explanation for when she does have that flat, that little flash of, of, of the memories that she had actually created. There were like, um, there's a word for that. I'm not saying flat. Is it just false memories? I feel like it's something more elaborate than that. And realize, well, that's what we just saw happen in the previous episode. Uh, a little, like we, like we had said, a little Wizard of Oz foray into the right, into this whole right. thing, you know. And every, and it's one of those things when you look back on it. I mean, even the camp being called Camp Utopia itself right. is kind of like just, it's kind of like waving a big flag in front of, like, this isn't real, not real. Why would they? Why would they make you carve? 
all these puppets. Come on, think about it, people. And right. <laughs> it'll be like it'll probably be like finger puppets. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, it, it it is very very um stark for her. But in all these moments, uh, I think we we went on quite a journey with Dot. Yes. That that uh, Dot may be the character we most uh, move our needle on in this series in this series history. That we go from like I don't know if I like her. She's gonna to all the way to like we want to see her take a, a fork and shove it in his eye and ram it into the back of his brain, like. Uh, she's really, really been through it, and we gain a lot of empathy and understanding for her along the way. Right. Um. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Uh, we earlier in the in the podcast, I, I had spent uh, a chunk of time talking about the first season, and I, I think there are some parallels one can make between season one and this season here. And going to what you what you just said, it's um our shifting of of loyalties and sentiment and who, who we care about in, in the episode. Um, the difference was more in season one. Uh, we, to be honest, we just spent more time with the, the members of the police in that season, more so than we're spending with Indira and, and Wit in this season. Um, so Dot is clearly the main character and who we're spending the most time with as opposed to, whoops, as opposed to season one where we felt like we spent a lot of time with the, uh, with the police there. Um, but like I said before, how our, our minds kind of change about Martin Freeman's character who is a victim at first, um, and then becomes almost as bad as the villain he's up against. Whereas in this season, we don't know what to make of that at first. We, you initially might feel for her because she's obviously the victim of a kidnapping, but then the way she acts about it afterwards is somewhat inexplicable because we don't know the story as of yet. And when you, there's moments that involve things like gaslighting of her husband and, and other things and just not being honest when we are confused by the lack of honesty um, made it a bit of a difficult, more of a difficult road for a viewer as far as, uh, how much we like her. And I, and again, it's, they, we talked about it before, so I, don't, I hate being as repetitive as I can be. But the scene between Indira and Lorraine in that previous episode, when Indira talks about regarding Dot as a hero, not a victim, it's also telling the viewers, do not, feel like you should be rooting for Dot or caring about Dot simply because she's a victim of what had happened to her before. You root for her or care about her because she's she survived what she did and she is dealing with things now. And right. she's dealing with the situation. She's not she's not looking to someone else to save her. She's gonna save herself. That's actually what sort of makes the that the what we now realize was absolutely a, the, the dream sequence of finding Linda and it's almost one more element that tells you it it couldn't have happened because she was relying on someone else to help her to 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 rescue her from the situation. Where at the end, I can't believe I'm going to say, at the end of the, the, end day, of the day, there it is. <laughs> it's been a while, but at the end of the day, 
while I'm sure all these other characters in the next episode or two are going to have something to do with a positive outcome for her, at the end of the day, I think she saves herself. Um, and I think if the person who's going to overcome Roy and eventually, you know, best him is going to be her. That said, Noah Hawley doesn't like to be super predictable. You know, you never know when a UFO might show up, people. <laughs> so, so we can't be totally sure. But now I can. Now that we're wrapping up the the, the episode and everything else, and I mean, you can say more in a second. Sure, I gotta say we are. Not, we only have two episodes left to go here. Very, very, very good season, man. This, I mean, it's easily eclipsed, mm -hmm. right? Un unless they tank the last two. For me, I really feel, although there, there's not not to be not not to take away from the previous two seasons that there's certainly really cool scenes and even episodes in those two seasons, but I think this season has far outclassed seasons three and four. I would go so far as to say it's on pace to probably be there with with season one if it continues on this trajectory. Tough for me because I still I still I still debate with myself if I like one or two better. I, I, I probably when this season is over, will rewatch one and two to see where I think this stands. But, um, you know, a couple of people who I got to watch the show have texted me and said, like, this is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And one of our fellow podcasters sent me a message after this episode and said, this is like Fargo's back to form. Fellow podcaster. Someone who could have appeared on any of the last few podcasts, but chose not to, or, I didn't tell her, so she... <laughs> can't both be true. They can both be true. I'm, gee, what, what are the odds of me? Anyway, um, well, in the same vein, it was funny. I, I, th I think I mentioned on the podcast. I hope it wasn't just simply offline, as they say. Um, a good friend of mine had started watching Fargo, but she started with season five, right? I did tell you. I was on the podcast, I think. Uh, friend of mine I talk about TV with every week uh, and one day we'll have our own podcast and then it'll just be called cancel this because I say the most inappropriate things in our conversations. Um, she, I, I kept telling her to watch Fargo, but I have been telling her, but I wanted to go back and watch seasons one and two. And then if you want, you can watch the rest, but those are the ones. But she instead decided to start with season, the current season and I went, oh, okay, you know what? You can do that. Cause it doesn't, the connections between it and previous seasons are tenuous at best. doesn't matter. Whatever. So she's been texting me for the last few days. Maybe she might even listen to this podcast. Who knows? You know, we'll knock on wood that maybe she'll actually listen to one. Um, at the beginning of a day, she had started season one. By the, by the end of that day, all I'm, I'm getting all these texts about how much she loves Billy Bob Thornton. It's like, oh my God, he's amazing, whatever. I love, uh, I love this. By the end, an hour or two later, just started season two. <laughs> End of the day, <laughs> love season two. <laughs> Starting season, she's all caught up. She's all she. Wow. As of, she said, "I'm watching. I'm gonna." In fact, she technically she was ahead of me because she watched episode eight <laughs> on Tuesday night when it aired. I was not home at the time, so for at least a brief moment in time, she passed me because she watched <laughs> all seasons. Where she probably had, a, she probably had. A, it was all fresher in her mind than would ever be in my mind, whatever. And all I said, and she was telling me about how it's like, oh my god! Those, I was like, told you so. That's all I said. Told you so. Yeah, I, I mean, 
we were excited this was coming back even more excited holly was going to be helming it and i i mean it it probably has surpassed what my expectations were yeah and has returned to early form in my opinion and they i believe i heard that they are uh, they're renewed for a season six I believe I just read that that as of January they they were they got they uh, were renewed for a season six. Or Holly's been talking about it, um, and probably FX has some stand because standing with Holly because he's going to work on that. I think that Alien series for them, whatever. God knows what that'll be like, um, but we'll see. Anyway, let's quickly wrap this up. Um, see what happens. We we record during the day instead of in the wee hours of the night. You know, we both of our rooms are brightly lit instead of <laughs> ensconced in shadow. <laughs> And we still talk forever. You know, I had my little Irish coffee. I don't know what you had over there. Probably some cough syrup. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, people, if you enjoy this podcast, hopefully you will enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page. No one ever does, but maybe you will. Look us up. It's Serious TV Drama Podcast page. You know, like the page and join the conversation or make a conversation about TV, movies, or anything else, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let a lot of shit slide there. We are available on most podcast platforms. If you look us up on podbean.com, spelled just how it sounds, you can access all, this is technically podcast number 399. You know what I'm going to be talking about in a second, don't you? So you can access all 399 of our episodes there. And if you happen to use Apple Podcasts or any other um, platform that allows for ratings and reviews. I hear it's on other sites and people tell me about them and then I go and I can't find it. So I don't know what they're talking about, but it's always nice to get rate, you know, positive ratings and reviews, you know, bad ones, not so much. Anyway, you can also find us on Instagram. Uh, serious TV drama is one word. Oh, I got, I got like five or six things I got to post there, which are just the pictures from the podcast. I keep forgetting. And you can also find us on what I call X Twitter at STVD podcast, STVD as in serious TV drama. Now, obviously, Brian and I, maybe a third person, who knows? Probably not. We'll be back next week to cover the next episode of Fargo. But that's going to be podcast number 401. We will be recording, unless something horrific happens, you know, knock on my head. We will be recording podcast number 400. Quote unquote, sometime this weekend. We actually know sort of when, but that's why I'm going to say it to you guys. We will be talking about the best of 2023 in terms of TV series, TV episodes, TV characters, you name it. It'll be a mostly positive podcast. Might be a rant or two somewhere in there. Who knows? If I'm involved and there's alcohol involved, it's probably going to happen. <laughs> there could even be a fourth person involved. We shall see. <laughs> As I always say, we shall see. Um, but I know we're looking forward to it. I'm I, I'm already designing the image for the podcast photo picture in my head. I know what, how I want to do it. I've got to see if I have the capability of doing it or I'm too stupid, whatever. But uh, I've been working on my lists earlier this morning. Um, Brian, you'd mentioned to me you've already finished it. Damn you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it should be fun. Um, and it will be – and it will be it, – I'll say right now, for anyone who's missed our longer podcasts, I'm going to guess that one's going to be a pretty long one. Yep, I'd say so. Because if we're, because between at least three of us, you're going to have two, you're going to have three top 20 lists. 
and some honorable mentions, and then two other lists that are top 10 lists. And if if I do the round robin style to m- keep kind of equal between us, it still takes forever. Uh, if you have just one person going through their list, then you'll have someone like me, oh, well, that's so unusual, or someone else just going on for like 15, 20 minutes. Or, so maybe we'll do that. We'll stick with the round robin thing. That way, kind of everyone gets a chance to rest in between or, or take a shot or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take a shot or we'll die. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, you know, and we might, Maybe we'll have a little trip down memory lane about the podcast because, you know, it is episode number 400. Um, I even dug out something which I plan to use at the end of the episode. Um, it'll be stupid and it'll probably get us in trouble with all sorts of copyright laws, but whatever. <laughs> it's only YouTube. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, Brian, thank you for taking some of your afternoon out. I've never... Oh, I enjoyed it. This is the brightest i've seen you since i saw since uh north carolina 2018 man or is it 2019 what was left 18 19 19 oh i went there 18 and 19 19 was last time okay nope thought 17 and 18 i went there nope no it was 18 and 19 <gasps> no i don't remember did i bring the okay anyway sorry i i just oh. Look at that. Even in the even in mid afternoon I can still derail the podcast with rambling <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Well, good day, sir. That's right, because it's so bright I can't it, it feels weird to say good night because that's how we normally end the podcast. Yep. Well, yes, good day to you, sir, and good day to everyone out there. And look forward to talking to you guys on podcast number four hundred. Mm-hmm.